Chastising people for voting against their own self-interests is a little insulting, if not a reductive topic for any show. After all, who am I to assume? Who's anyone to assume? What is in someone's best interest? Further complicating things is that we've moved past monolithic voting blocks while still operating under the illusion of a two-party system. We are aliens, but what are you going to do about it? It's a two-party system. You have to vote for one of us. Two parties that are so closely aligned in reality, but sold to us as distinct propositions. We can hardly tell who's telling the truth and who stands for what. You're tearing me apart! And within that system, we fall into dozens of smaller tribal identities sprinkled along the political spectrum. Progressive, moderate, libertarian, conservative, liberal, socialist, capitalist, democrat, republican, bernie bro, trumper, globalist, isolationist, pro-life, pro-choice, furry. Wait, what? Anti-fascist, proud boy, feminist, fundamentalist, so many identities, so few elections. Let the unfucking begin. Oh my friends, we are fucked. Deliciously, unreservedly, catastrophically fucked. And not the good kind. We'll traverse this audio journey together to upend conventional wisdom, blow up narratives on the left, right, and middle, and use magical devices like facts, logic, and reason to explain how exactly we arrived in Bizarro America, the funhouse mirror version of what was originally intended. I have found myself more and more fully committed to being ungovernable. We'll examine exactly how and why we're fucked. You want to claim this land is the land of the free? Then the symbol of your country cannot just be a flag. Dig into why we can't seem to unfuck ourselves. Perhaps it might be better, Mr. President, if you were more concerned with the American people than with your image in a history book. Ask why we settle for leaders who fuck us over. Please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. And see if we can unfuck things just a bit, all by ourselves. I do think that as long as you continue looking at things through that old patriarchal Cartesian-Atonian lens, you're going to miss out on what the world really is. What we're going to unfuck on today's episode is why so much of the public vote against candidates and policies that stand for the public good. It's a long and twisted road that upends societal norms. In order to unfuck such fuckery, we'll have to be methodical, so settle in, because this will be a little longer than usual. We'll start by identifying what our best interests actually are, as individuals and as a civil society. Then we'll walk through how these ideas are manipulated into adverse public policy and by whom. Lastly, we'll show how identities are created, cultivated, and sold back to us to try on in the political fitting room. Will you emerge with a Trump flag waving from the back of your pickup truck or a coexist bumper sticker on your Honda Accord? No matter how you lean, there's an app for that, a logo, and a whole bunch of data to help support your views, even if they run counter to your best interests. If it sounds like the art of propaganda, that's because it is. There's a good old-fashioned word for people like this. We call them suckers. First, let's set the table by identifying best interests, because that strikes at the heart of identity politics. 
We'll take a bifurcated approach to first identify the needs of the individual, then match them against the needs of the state. But let's start with the state. Since Plato split us into rulers, guardians, and producers in the Republic, political philosophers have been trying to determine the best form of governance for a people and our respective roles within a functioning society. We created a paradise out of Plato's Republic. Our children shall be philosopher kings. One of the outcomes of the American experiment is the proposition that each generation can do better than the one before. Upward mobility, increased comfort and leisure. The framework for this was to create a system of opportunity for all citizens with certain inalienable rights. And for the sake of this analysis, we'll move past the whole people as property, blacks are three-fifths human concept and rights extending only to white male landowners because it's just so inconvenient. Let's just acknowledge that our imperfect union was demonstrably imperfect from the outset. Now, I must, uh, I must study politics and war, you see, so that my sons will have the liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. My sons must study uh, navigation, commerce, and agriculture so that their children will have the right to study uh, painting and poetry and music. Now, the premise of this polemic will center on a particular phrase that is ever-present in our founding documents, general welfare. The American system of government, as intended by the framers and expanded since, was designed to provide certain liberties that allowed for the pursuit of economic mobility for its citizens. And one of the most critical portions of the Constitution, as argued in the Federalist Papers and codified in various Supreme Court rulings, allowed for states and the federal government to pursue taxation as a means to support the, quote, general welfare of the people, particularly, in Hamilton's view at least, where education and agriculture were concerned. So from this, let's assume that part of our belief system of what comprises a productive society includes those two things, the production of and access to food and state-sponsored education. These are fundamental rights. I'll argue a step further that the nature of the word welfare also extends to the health of the population. After all, a sick population, as the founders no doubt understood, considering their generation was born with the scars of empire-ending plagues, is an expensive and doomed population. And lastly, the founders explicitly included the right to raise money for the common defense of the nation. So, in this we have set the basis of our understanding for what is necessary and elemental to a functioning society. Health, education, food, security, and the right to economic mobility. Now let's take a look at the individual. It's a hackneyed trope, but a useful one nonetheless. Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs According to the famed psychologist and Brooklynite Abraham Maslow, humans required fulfillment of basic needs before being able to attain higher levels of personal and psychological achievement. Basically, enlightenment and self-actualization aren't all that important if you're hungry and don't have a place to shit. I might be paraphrasing, but you get the point. The groundbreaking part of Maslow's theory wasn't acknowledging that these things matter, but that the order mattered most. Anyway, at the bottom of Maslow's pyramid are things like food and water, 
and the ability to rest. He calls these the basic needs. Next up are psychological needs like relationships and accomplishments. And if you're lucky enough to check these boxes, then you get to work on yourself and be creative, the self-actualization part of the pyramid. Or as our friend John Adams described in the earlier quote, his grandkids won't have time to fuck around and paint if his kids don't have a job, which means he needs to go about kicking ass in a war to build a nation. Again, I'm paraphrasing. Picking these apart, we can see that the needs of the individual align pretty closely with the desired outcome of a proper republic, at least as the founders saw it. Food, education, security, opportunity. A truly healthy person in society could focus on self-actualizing measures if only we could build a stable foundation to our pyramid. Now we can move on to how exactly individuals and whole populations can somehow be convinced that they actually don't need the government to provide these things at all. The ashtray, the power game, and the remote control, and that's all I need. We've established that it should be fairly unassailable to say that the concept of general welfare includes things like food, shelter, safety, education, and economic opportunity. And that if we provide these things, we as humans and we as a society will be better suited to tackle the top of the pyramid, to create, find love, achieve peace and fulfillment. Let's talk about where this all comes apart and who's pulling on the threads. Enter the so-called think tank. For every important public initiative, there's a policy institute that advocates for or against it. Mr. Naylor, who provides the financial backing for the Academy of Tobacco Studies? Uh, conglomerated Tobacco. That's the cigarette companies? For the most part, yes. Do you think that might affect their priorities? Uh, no, just as I'm sure campaign contributions don't affect yours. Oh. <laughs> That's a quick excerpt from the movie Thank You for Smoking, about a tobacco lobbyist. In this scene, our protagonist, played by Aaron Eckhart, is arguing in front of a congressional committee about the veracity of cigarette company-funded research. In turn, Eckhart points out the audacity of a public official hired to make policy while accepting campaign contributions from corporations. That's the big circle jerk that is the legislative process in this country. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, it's a long, long journey to the Capitol City. It's a long, long wait while I'm sitting in committee. But I know I'll be a law someday. At least I hope and pray that I will. But today I am still just a bill. I'm just a bill. If only. Of course, that's what we were taught as kids. The reality is so much different these days. Even casual observers of politics and policy will likely recognize the big names in the game. Brookings, the Cato Institute, Human Rights Watch, Council on Foreign Relations. It's estimated that there are more than 5,000 active think tanks in the world. And as usual, the United States dominates the arena with more than a third of them. Of the 1,800 or so registered think tanks in the U.S., more than half of them sprung up just over the past quarter century alone. The funding for these programs is a spider web of dark money from public and private donors with agendas to push and white papers to publish. They range from university appendages like Mercatus at George Mason University and large foundations with policy arms to small, single-issue, one-person shops. 
Some have fairly obvious names that pretend an agenda like the Center for Muslim Jewish Engagement. Others have patriotic-sounding names like Center for Freedom and Prosperity, which promotes offshore tax havens. That's all they do. And if you can think of an issue, there's the think tank attached to a foundation funded by someone who has a bone to pick. Now, I'm not saying that all of these are bad institutions that do the bidding of some shadowy figure intent on destroying the world. Some men just want to watch the world burn. And then again, sometimes that's exactly what's going on. Some of these think tanks boast enormous funding and outsized influence. And one of the keys to their Machiavellian approach is to turn the benign into the malignant and cause you to fear the very thing that you need. The left and the right both have their boogeymen. It's the Koch brothers on the right, and one of them's now dead, and George Soros on the left. Ooh, hysteria reigns on both sides when these guys come up in conversation. And you know what? They're not wrong. But the influence is deeper and more insidious and a lot broader than just these guys. If you want to understand just how much money the billionaire class wages in bending policy, read Jane Mayer's Dark Money. It'll keep you up at night. Or at least it should. There are literally billions of dollars coursing through the system every year to prop up think tanks and policy centers that perform research intended to promote or destroy social, economic, health, environmental, international, technological, and military policies. And their designations allow them to accept funds from individuals, corporations, and the government without necessarily disclosing the funding sources. Then, there's the messengers. With 1,800 think tanks pumping out information on a daily basis, it takes a highly effective and coordinated network to carry the water. Have no fear, as there are nearly 12,000 registered lobbyists in the United States for just that reason. Now, these lobbyists are often funded by the same sources, but empowered to carry these fantastically researched pieces of policy information and somehow turn them into law. Everyone likes to talk about the lobbying influence and power of the unions and how they screwed the country. But on sheer numbers alone in the top 11 sectors, with labor coming in at a smooth 11, unions represent about 1.5% of all lobbying activity. It's actually the pharmaceutical industry, banks, oil and gas, defense contractors, and tech companies like Facebook and Amazon that make up the bulk of lobbying. And it makes sense, doesn't it? After all, Who's more protected these days, corporations or workers? The math bears out the answer you probably just came up with in your head just now. Let's let our protagonist once again handle how to properly argue with conviction. How about lobbyists? What's that? It's kind of like being a movie star. It's what I do. I talk for a living. What do you talk about? I speak on behalf of cigarettes. My mom used to smoke. She says cigarettes kill. Really? Now, is your mommy a doctor? No. A scientific researcher of some kind? No. Well, she doesn't exactly sound like a credible expert now, does she? So where does our character get his credible information from? Oh, right, the think tank. To get the point across, let's talk about one of the heavyweight champs of public policy. The Heritage Foundation. Sounds homespun and charming, doesn't it? The Heritage Foundation and its sister lobbying arm Heritage Action for America openly develop public policy for so-called conservative issues and lobby conservative lawmakers to adopt them. 
The main foundation receives funding from a labyrinth of conservative donors, several billionaires, other foundations, foreign entities, the oil and gas, defense, tobacco, and technology industries, among others, and other undisclosed donors. Here's a fun one. Did you know that they were the chief architects of what became known as Obamacare? Say what? Yep. They lobbied for universal privately insured health care with an individual mandate. Why? Because they wanted people to pay for insurance and to stop undocumented immigrants and poor people from using the emergency room as a primary care doctor. You didn't think Mitt Romney came up with that all by himself, did you? Then the second it was adopted by a Democratic president, meaning a black guy, it became the third rail and Heritage promptly reversed course. Beyond this seismic flip-flop, the Heritage Foundation greatest hits include fighting against taxes on cigarette companies, blasting immigration reform measures, railing against climate change legislation, and advocating for covert military funding and operations in foreign nations to overthrow governments. Just a few among other pet projects they have. Well, isn't that special? One of the most effective ground strategies these organizations have is the creation of what's called model legislation. In other words, they write the legislation they want to see, leave the sponsors blank, and circulate them throughout the states hoping their measures will be turned into law. Let's put some real numbers to this to demonstrate just how little influence voters have on what their legislators actually do and propose. In 2019, the Center for Public Integrity published a report generated by USA Today and the Arizona Republic, which found at least 10,000 bills, almost entirely copied from model legislation, were introduced nationwide in just the past eight years. And more than 2,000 of those bills were signed into law. To help us through a few passages in the report, here's my friend. We'll call him Bobby. Bobby from Brooklyn, to give us some highlights. Model bills passed into law have made it harder for injured consumers to sue corporations. They've called for taxes on sugar-laden drinks. They've limited access to abortion and restricted the rights of protesters. Fucking bunch of dicks. Uh, Bobby, please, just keep reading. Models are drafted with deceptive titles and descriptions to disguise their true intent. The Asbestos Transparency Act didn't help people exposed to asbestos. It was written by corporations who wanted to make it harder for victims to recoup money. The HOPE Act, introduced in nine states, was written by a conservative group to make it more difficult for people to get food stamps. Are you fucking kidding me? That shit wouldn't fly where I'm from. Again, if you don't mind. All right, all right, all right. Where was I? Cities and counties have raised their minimum wage, banned plastic bags, and destroyed seized guns, only to have industry groups that oppose such measures make them illegal with model bills passed in state legislatures. Yo, fuck that bullshit. Fuck this bullshit indeed, Bobby. So who exactly is writing these model bills? Sorry, Democrats. Outgunned again. Turns out 83% of model legislation was written either by conservative advocacy groups or directly by corporations. 92% of the bills that actually became law were from those two groups, proving once again liberals suck at hand-to-hand -hand combat and lack the kind of overwhelming coordination that corporations and conservative groups maintain. So where are we? Oh, right. Billionaire X has a problem. So he, I'm assuming his preferred pronoun is he, uses a network of shell corporations to provide funding to think tanks that generate research to support a thesis that would eliminate said problem. 
The think tanks send research to lobbyists who push it off to legislators as proof that new laws need to be passed. Then they coordinate with billionaire X's corporation to write the legislation directly. Now, the biggest missing ingredient here is public sentiment, buy-in, manufactured consent. Someone needs to sell this bullshit to the American people so the lawmaker can hold up some new bill with some fucking patriotic title and claim that he or she is defending the best interests of the American people. Enter the mouthpiece, or the shill. The reason I call the Heritage Foundation the heavyweight champ among the thousands of think tanks, lobbyists, and corporations directly peddling influence isn't because they're the biggest. Now, it's a $100 million-plus organization with ties to several other closely related groups and lobbyists that all told pour billions of dollars into our elections. But they're still not the biggest. They're the best because they're by far the most media-savvy. Now, to really sell your snake oil, you need some clever spokespeople and mouthpieces. These are folks who identify with the people and can twist that thing that's good for you around in your brain until it no longer makes any sense coming back out of your mouth. Take, for example, this sincere and charming fella convincing Americans that Medicare, yeah, Medicare, is nothing more than socialized medicine that will rob you of your freedoms. One of the traditional methods of imposing statism or socialism on a people has been by way of medicine. It's very easy to disguise a medical program as a humanitarian project. Most people are a little reluctant to oppose anything that suggests medical care for people who possibly can't afford it. In case you couldn't place the voice, that's none other than the Gipper himself, Ronald Reagan shilling for the AMA in a prepared script designed to attack Medicare. That's when there were five TV stations and AM radio only. Today, the information channels are limitless, and no one has fused policy and punditry better than the Heritage Foundation. Where others rely on making their own videos they post to YouTube and speaking on panels at conferences, Heritage has a revolving door booking engine that gets their research fellows on podcasts, evening news shows, and mentioned in op-eds. Welcome back. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Joining us on the line is John Malcolm, Vice President for the Institute for Constitutional Government and Director of the Mises Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at Heritage Foundation. President of the Institute for Constitutional Government at the Heritage Foundation, former Deputy Assistant Attorney General. I want to get a a big picture historical overview with our friend Jared Stepman. He's from the Heritage Foundation. John Malcolm, Vice President of the Institute for Constitutional Government at the Heritage Foundation. The Heritage Foundation, I have it here in front of the Heritage Foundation. There have been 1,285 proven cases of voter fraud in Voter fraud, immigration, Black Lives Matter, Obamacare, unions, Second Amendment, you name it. They've got an expert locked, loaded, and ready to spray verbal bullets through the screen and into your earballs. Heritage Foundation research and mouthpieces regularly make their way through high-profile shows like Hannity and popular podcasts like Ben Shapiro. 12,000 lobbyists, 1,800 think tanks, two-party system, and one ass-fuck nation. Clean air and water? It's my right to pollute if it makes me money. Well-funded education? Education is a privilege. Access to affordable health care? Get a job with benefits, you fucking welfare queen. Pre-existing condition? Your diabetes is not my fucking problem. Ranked 15th in standard of living despite being the wealthiest nation? Move to Sweden, you fucking commie. 
Raise the minimum wage. You're a job killer. Background checks on weapon purchases. This is in North Korea. If you can make a common sense argument based on the concept of general welfare, there's a corporation-funded policy group armed and ready with a white paper, a spokesperson, a sponsor for pre-written laws, and a talk show host with prepared bullet points all ready to tell you why it's a communist plot to take your guns away, kill your grandparents, and turn us into Denmark. And for the record, Denmark's awesome. I feel like if there was a national-sponsored school trip to Denmark, everyone here would be like, oh, this is pretty cool. So here's the deal. Ah, fuck. Biden killed that phrase, didn't he? Okay, listen. While so-called conservatives have the hot hand right now, both sides are engaged in pay-to-play fuckery. Over the past five years, Chuck Schumer took in three million bucks from the finance industry and lobbyists alone. Mitch McConnell, that turtleneck fuck, has raised more than $40 million in the past five years from donors and PACs. $40 million. In 2019, federal lobbyists spent a whopping $3.5 billion, and that doesn't account for state and local lobbying activities. An ungodly sum is being poured into social media disinformation campaigns and spreading clips of think tank pundits, which is a problem because as of 2019, more Americans admit to getting their news from social media than newspapers. News literacy is an actual college course. We have to teach people how to watch and interpret the fucking news because it's no longer news. It's time to start trusting yourself and your instincts. Turn off the TV. Log off social media. Start thinking again. Because the system of information is rigged. And you can trust me when I tell you that. After all, I'm a podcaster. Here endeth the lesson.